Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, for you and for the forgiveness of your sins. God fills us with his love, and it overflows in an abundant way as the people of God that he has called us to be. From Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska, this is Proclaiming the One with Pastors Clint Poppy and Adam Moline. Welcome once again to Proclaiming the One. Pastor Clint Poppy, Pastor Adam Moline, we are privileged to serve the saints at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Each week we take time to look at the upcoming readings for the Sunday worship celebration in the church. We do this according to the one-year series of readings, Lutheran Service Book one-year series, and we are always proclaiming the one and only Savior from sin, our Lord and Savior Jesus. Uh, Today we're going to be looking at the readings for the first Sunday in Lent. Pastor, happy Lent! Well, thank you. Yeah, it's the most wonderful time of the year, right? Ah, there you go. Garrison Keeler would often joke about Lutherans that uh, for Lutherans, every Sunday is Lent. And he meant that as a negative he meant that as uh, Lutherans, uh, oh, are or uh, dirgy or grumpy or not celebratory or something like that. Uh, a few words in general, Pastor, about the more somber nature of the Lenten season. Yeah, sure. Uh, you know. Um Maybe from an outward appearance, if we don't understand what's going on, that's the way we appear. But the season of Lent is not about uh, being dirgy or somber or even, uh, you know, forcing ourselves to uh, frown and wear dark colored clothing or anything like that. But rather, it's an opportunity for us as Christians to confess the truth of what Scripture says, that we are poor, miserable sinners who, on our own merit, deserve eternal punishment in hell, and that uh, we are looking forward to the salvation that has been won for us by Jesus Christ, crucified and risen on Good Friday at the end of Lent, uh, and raised from the dead on Easter, uh, so that we can rejoice in the great gift that God has given to us, acknowledging our sin and seeing how great the cost was so that we understand how amazing our God really is. And so the season of Lent, it is somber. We do um, sing serious hymns and we take things very seriously in our, our worship services, but it's not just for the sake of looking grumpy or showing people how grumpy and grouchy we Lutherans are. Uh, in, in the way you explained it, Pastor, uh, properly understood, that comment by Garrison Keeler is uh, the highest compliment that anybody could ever give. Because when your focus is clearly, unashamedly, and directly on the cross of Jesus Christ, the passion and suffering of Jesus Christ for forgiveness, life, and salvation, uh, there's no better place to be. Right. And and that is a... Uh, uh, 24-7, 365 uh, blessing that the and, Lord has given us. And I think uh, if you come to our Ash Wednesday service, um, that kind of makes itself manifest in the Scripture lessons that are pointed for there. It's not about um, fasting and showing everybody that you're fasting. It's about really a spiritual fasting and realizing the truth of our sin and the forgiveness of God. And so you can have that sort of fast for the season of Lent, and nobody even knows about it, uh, and that's just a fine thing. Awesome, awesome. The uh, we, we are vicarless this morning as we record this, and uh, 
Vicar was on vacation last week, came back from vacation. Now they got a little bug kind of running through the family. Isn't that, it often happens when people go on vacation and they're in a different part of the country, they come back with a, with a little bug. And so we, uh, we keep uh, Vicar and family in our prayers as they uh, recuperate. Vicar's not in too bad a shape, but he's home taking care of his wife. And so that is a, that is a good and godly thing to do. The Old Testament reading for the first Sunday, or uh, the gospel reading, excuse me, the gospel reading for the first Sunday in Lent, Matthew 4, 1 to 11. Pastor? Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and... On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan! For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Okay, we have a lot of stuff here in these uh, 11 verses from Matthew 4. Pastor, uh, I love love to put these uh, narrative accounts in context. Matthew 4 comes after Matthew 3. Duh. It says, then. What happens in Matthew 3 uh, prior to the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness? Well, Matthew 3 is the baptism of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that's kind of an interesting thing in in this regard. Uh, The baptism of Jesus Christ takes place in the southern part of the Jordan River Valley, um, kind of uh, the same sort of location where the children of Israel entered into the Holy Land uh, back in the the Old Testament time of Joshua. And so that takes place, the Jordan, the same place the children of Israel cross into uh, the Holy Land through the Jordan River. And you remember there, uh, the water piled up upstream so that they could pass on dry ground. Uh, And now Christ is also going out into the wilderness, which is the place from which the children of Israel had come to enter the Promised Land. And so in a way, he's kind of going backwards, uh, back to where they were, the opposite direction before he comes back and begins his ministry. And in so doing, he's fulfilling what they failed to do in their time in the wilderness. And then also, uh, he's also facing down the temptation of Satan, as we heard. And we'll hear more about that when we get to the uh, Old Testament which is from Genesis chapter 3, which I think this text is also fulfilling. So, so we have, uh, we have a, a, an exodus theme that's going on here. We have a uh, crossing of the Jordan baptism theme that's going on here. And uh, the, the temptation of Jesus is, um, 
uh, highly significant for us, and we uh, we sometimes dance around the uh, core issues and try to answer questions that really are not that big of a deal with regard to this temptation. In uh, in at least one of the gospel accounts, I th- I think I'm thinking here of the Gospel of Mark, but it says that the Spirit flung uh, ekbalo uh, flung Jesus out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Uh, Pastor, what role does the Holy Spirit have? with regard to this temptation of Jesus here, and does it matter, or why does it matter? Yeah, um, it, it is in Mark one uh, twelve where the Spirit drove Jesus out into the wilderness or cast him out into the wilderness. And um, I guess you, you'd say the Spirit is doing this because in these actions that we're going to learn about today, the temptation of Christ, Jesus really is fulfilling God's word for us. He's fulfilling what we have been unable to do. He's doing what Adam should have done in the Garden of Eden when the fall into sin happened. Uh, Christ is now uh, submitting himself and being submitted as the Spirit drives him uh, to the temptation of Satan. But unlike us, he does not give in because he remains without sin, perfectly pure, undefiled. And so the Spirit is sending him out there to demonstrate that for us so that we might understand who Christ is and why he has come uh, to fulfill all righteousness in our place so that we can have salvation uh, in our present time and in our present circumstances. I have a, I have a question that's going to seem maybe a little offbeat, Pastor, but um, maybe a question better suited for the end of our discussion on this text, but I'm going to throw it out now anyway. You've already made the connection between the temptation of Jesus and Genesis 3, the fall into sin, and we're going to talk about that in a little bit. And so now we have Jesus being cast out into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit to fulfill um, and to succeed where Adam failed. Can we make any connection to our Christian baptism where the baptized child of God is now flung out into the world, a world of sin, a world that hates the gospel, and a, a wilderness, so to speak. And our only hope is to cling to the one who overcame temptation in the wilderness, Jesus, rather than following the old Adam or the old Eve, Genesis 3. Am, am I making any sense with that question? Yeah, and I think there is certainly a parallel uh, for us in that regard. Uh, we don't want that to be the only thing, that this is just symbolic of us living out in the world. This really truly happens to our Lord Jesus Christ, and so we can't downplay the fact of that. I would also say to you, I think it's important to see both in Mark, as we just talked about, but then here also in Matthew, which is our actual assigned text, that Jesus is led by the Spirit. And as, as good Lutherans, we always know where the Spirit is, right? He doesn't just float around. It's not like he uh, suddenly appeared as a giant boot and kicked Jesus behind out into the wilderness. Where is the Spirit? He is always, always, always attached to God's Word. And so in that regard, too, Jesus doesn't go out into the wilderness um, 
unprepared. He's there with the Holy Spirit, which is attached to God's word, who he is himself, God's word, the word made flesh. And so Jesus has at his disposal the tools necessary to overcome Satan's temptations and to um, fulfill what we have been unable to because of our sinful natures. And so that's important for us to see here as well. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, before we get into the actual three temptations, we'll do that in our next segment. Uh, just briefly, Pastor, it says that he was out in the wilderness fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, and that's where we get our 40-day length of Lent, and that's why this is read on the first Sunday in Lent, uh, and he was hungry. What are we to make out of the fact that Jesus was fasting and now he's hungry? Well, besides the fact that if you didn't eat for 40 days, you'd be hungry too, right? Uh, I mean, I think obviously it's staying, stating the importance uh, that uh, what's very obvious, I guess is what I'm trying to say. It's, it's stating the obvious. Uh, but I think also the 40 days is very important because uh, Scripture uses that number 40 a lot. Uh, Noah uh, and the flood, there was rain for 40 days and for 40 nights. Uh, we have other places in Scripture where the people go out into the wilderness for 40 days and... Uh, I have to look up the one I'm trying to think of because I can't remember exactly where it is. So this is a common thing, and the 40 days then, therefore, is a significant number. And um, there is a certain amount of this Jesus is all of us fulfilling these things in our place. And so as we continue to see that, I think that is very important that even here in the season of Lent, what are we doing? We're I don't know if we're following Jesus, but really he is us as we journey through the season of Lent towards Easter, uh, creating faith in us, pouring out his spirit upon us so that we are never alone in this world. He fulfills God's word for us, and we're going to see specifically how he does that as Satan attacks him three times. We'll be right back in just a moment. This is Proclaiming the One. Don't change that dial. You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. Do we pass that cross unheeding, breathing no repentant hell? Though we see your wounded, bleeding, see your thorn encircled brow. Welcome back to Proclaiming the One. Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline. We serve at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Come check us out during this Lenten season, uh, anytime for that matter. But we gather for worship at 8 and 10.30 every Sunday morning. Bible study for all ages in between during the Lenten season. We also have extra opportunities for worship on Wednesday. We worship at 4 p.m. and at 6.30 p.m. each Wednesday during the season of Lent. And we have a fellowship meal serving in between. Please join us, 3825 Wildbriar Lane. And uh, we'd love to, love to, love to see you and uh, have you join us for worship during this holy Lenten season. In our first segment, we did kind of an intro of our gospel reading for the first Sunday in Lent. Matthew 4, 1 to 11. We want to take a look now at the actual temptations themselves. We have Jesus being flung out into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit. We are, in a sense, 
kind of fulfilling and retracing the journey of the children of Israel. Really, it's the journey of the children of Israel all the way from Adam uh, to right here where we speak right now. And so we see a lot of those Exodus themes that are happening. Jesus in the previous chapter is baptized in the Jordan River at uh, pretty much the same spot where Joshua led the children of Israel into the Promised Land. And, And you can go visit it now, the mine field that used to be there that stopped people from visiting it has been cleared away as of the last year or two. What country? Well, it's, uh, see, the Jordan River is the border between Israel and Jordan, and it's towards the southern part of that, and I think that the actual church um, that marks the spot is located in Jordan, but, um, I mean, it's in the river, so it's right on the border. Okay, okay, uh Excellent, excellent historical information here. And so now we see Jesus is there, the serpent is there, uh, Satan. Uh, Jesus is hungry because he's been fasting, and Satan always comes at us uh, as does to Jesus in our weakened state. So this first temptation, uh, the tempter came and said to him, to Jesus, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Pastor, about this temptation, what can we glean? Well, um, first off, and, and we'll see this as we look at Genesis as well, Satan always works the same way. He always is twisting and changing God's word, um, leaving parts of it out or taking it out of context as uh, all those who manipulate God's word do. And so that's the way that he goes after Adam and Eve in the garden. That's the way he goes after all of us in our day-to-day lives. And so he tries the same thing here with Jesus. Uh, If you are the Son of God, there's doubt there, are you or aren't you, uh, then you should do this thing to take care of yourself. In other words, he's really tempting Jesus Number one, to show his godly ability, if he really is God, as if he needs to show it off. Secondly, to not rely on God the Father, who is the one who gives us clothing, shoes, food, drink, house, home, wife, children, land, animals, and all that we have, but rather to rely on himself to kind of be rogue from his Trinitarian nature in that regard, and to feed himself at his own ability instead of trusting God's doing it. And so these are the things that Satan is trying to do all in one little sentence he he has all these things and more that he's throwing at Jesus. So in a sense, Jesus is uh, uh, being tempted with regard to what we Christians, uh, Lutheran Christians, would say, the first article gifts. Yeah. And yeah. I think I think sometimes that's helpful. Uh, Jesus did not recite the Apostles' Creed, of course, but... To look at this as, uh, you know, food is a part of the first article gifts. Pastor quoted from the catechism there. And the one thing that we have in common with all three of the temptations from Satan to Jesus is the word if. If. In verse um, verse 3, if you are the Son of God. In verse 6, if you are the Son of God. Verse 9, if you will fall down and worship me. This word, if, is a key, key word in the toolbox of Satan. Because Satan is all about doubt. He wants to rob you of your certainty. Uh, the, The German word for this is gewiss. He wants to steal your gewiss. How's that for a sermon title? Uh, 
That could but, be misinterpreted badly. <laughs> yeah, I think so, too. I think so, too. Uh, Pastor, the role of doubt in the weaponry of Satan in attacking Jesus and in attacking the Christian. Well, uh, that is Satan's biggest tool, if you will, and it's the one that he uses the most often. And in that regard, I don't want to downplay the dangerousness of Satan or anything like that, but uh, he is a one-hit wonder in that regard. That's the same sort of thing he is always doing. He, he doesn't have that many tricks. He's just really, really, really good at the one trick that he does have. And so putting doubt into your faith, uh, that word if, just by even saying that, if you are, or if God says, or if the word does this, uh, when you have that, all of a sudden it opens up the possibility that God isn't speaking the truth. It changes your understanding of the the, the way God cares for us, um, bringing contingency into our understanding of who God is. In the second temptation, and I want to kind of lump Jesus' responses together toward the end here, Pastor, if you follow along where I'm going here. In the second temptation, the devil took um, uh, Jesus to the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. And then Satan goes, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. <laughs> so Satan here is quoting the Holy Scriptures. Yeah, he's singing on eagle's wings. It's his favorite hymn. <laughs> so what can we learn about the toolbox of Satan in this particular temptation? He has the if, but then he adds something to it. Well, yeah, um, and this isn't really any different than what he did for Adam and Eve again, like we're going to look at in a little while here. God's word is clear in what it says and what it teaches, and what he does is he introduces uh, a question. Is God's word true or is it not true? Can we trust it or do we need to come up with our own understanding? Uh, was it written a long time ago by people in a different um, setting in the world or does it apply to everybody everywhere at every time? And so the if there brings contingency now not into the identity of God as the last one, as the provider, but rather into the word that God speaks here. Uh, as if we could not trust the things that God says. In the third temptation, uh, there's just another little subtle uh, uh, nuance here. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to, the, said to him, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Each of these, in some way, shape, or form, is tempting Jesus to doubt or question his identity. What's going on in this third temptation with regard to this appeal to seemingly give something to Jesus he already owns? Well, um, in a certain regard, Jesus does own it. In another regard, he doesn't, uh, in the sense that it's an open rebellion. Uh, in the same way that the Union couldn't control what was happening in Richmond, Virginia during the Civil War, even though technically we could say it's a part of the United States, well, it's in rebellion, so it doesn't 
It's not under his authority in that regard. But in this particular case, I would say Jesus is being tempted by Satan to avoid the cross. Uh, The way that Jesus purchases and wins the entire world for himself is by shedding his blood, by suffering, and by dying and rising again. And here Satan is saying, ah, I'll give it all to you in a different way, an easier way. Take the easy way out and just worship me, and then you don't have to do all that suffering and uh, hurting and uh, and face all the mocking and the, the ridicule and all that. Um, he's trying to give it to him in a different way on Satan's terms instead of on God's terms. And so again, that word if and that contingency that comes in there, uh, in this case, the temptation is to avoid the cross and to therefore not save us. And I love how you brought that together because that connects the temptation in the wilderness to the, if you want to say it, the last temptation of Christ when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane mm-hmm. to to try to save the people of God apart from the cross and the suffering that is there. And uh, that, that kind of wraps a ribbon around all of that temptation part. Now, um, Pastor, each time when Jesus is tempted... He responds by speaking the word of God. Now, it just so happens that all three of his responses are from the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, I, uh, you and I were talking during the break. This is a book of the Bible that Christians need to study more because there is so much there. But Jesus says, as uh, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Um which is ironic because the way bread exists is God says, let there be bread. And so it's not just the things that take care of our temporal needs that God provides, but the things that take care of the entire person spiritually as well. Again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And then finally, with the last one, he commands Satan to be gone, uh, almost reminding us of what he says to Peter, get thee behind me, Satan. Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Um, Jesus knows Scripture. He commands Scripture. He is the Word incarnate. What are we to glean from Jesus speaking the Word of God uh, to defeat Satan? And what is the Christian to learn from that as well? Well, um, if we actually spend time in God's Word and understand what it says— Excuse me, and we we should all do a better job at that and repent of our sin, especially as in Lent. Um, we should do that. If we understand God's word, we should understand that if we use it properly and correctly, there is no way Satan can actually overcome it. Now, our problem is is that as sinful people, we don't do that. Christ does not have sin. He uses God's word properly, the sword of it, the two-edged sword, and he uh, stabs it right where it needs to be in facing up against Satan here in this particular text. As Christians, we ought to know God's word well enough to uh, listen to it and apply it properly when the times arise and to, to follow what it says. And shame, shame to us, we don't do that as well as we should. Go to church, go to Bible study, do family devotions or personal devotions if you're single, and uh, be in God's Word. You know, if people would spend 10% of the time that they spend on Facebook or Twitter or Netflix in the Bible. Or TV. Or TV in general. Um, our world, our churches would be completely transformed by the power of God's Word. We just don't believe it. We don't believe that it is what it is 
claims to be. We don't believe that it has the power to do what it promises to do. And during this season of Lent, uh, we do. We do repent, and we pray that God would bless us for with a hunger to hear the word of God and to keep it. We need to take a short break. This is Proclaiming the One. We're looking at the readings for the first Sunday in Lent. When we come back, we're going to take a look at the Old Testament reading that we've referred to many times, Genesis 3, 1 to 21. Don't change that dial. You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. Welcome back to Proclaiming the One, Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline. We serve the saints at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Every one of our worship services at Good Shepherd is broadcast live right here on KNNALP 95.7 in and around Lincoln. You can always listen on the app if you're outside of our uh, KNNA listening area, or you can listen on the internet, www.thecross957.org. And there at the website, there are many, many wonderful programs. Uh, check out the archives, give us your feedback, and especially thanks for listening. We're looking at the readings today for the first Sunday in Lent. The Old Testament reading, this is the traditional Old Testament reading. Uh, LSB one-year series provides for an option here, and so you hear this at Good Shepherd every other year, and that's kind of a shame. This is a key foundational passage in Scripture, and so um, if there was one thing I would change about the one-year series, that might be it right there. But um, I guess we're free in the gospel, too. We don't have to do the alternate if we don't want to. Pastor, Genesis 3, 1 to 21. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit in the trees of the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired, desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked." And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, 
The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Okay, we have a lot of stuff here, and uh, there's no way we're going to be able to do justice to this in one segment. However, we do want to have a uh, flyby. As Pastor Kuhlman would say, we want to hit on some of the highlights. And remembering that this is the first Sunday in Lent, we have the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. This reading is chosen because it is the temptation of Eve and Adam in the Garden of, of uh, Eden. And so we want to try to try to make some comparisons there and uh, see how, how um, God's Word is teaching us and instructing us. Uh, when um, the uh, serpent, uh, God, or, uh, Satan uses the serpent, and uh, to bring in a word contrary to the word of God. The serpent says, did God actually say? If. Um, I mean, that's essentially the if, right, that we were I talking just, about before. I was just going to ask, can we, can we connect that to the if of Satan with regard to Jesus? Yeah, like we said in the other segment, uh, Satan is kind of a one-trick pony, if you will. He's very, very good at it, but uh, his... Modus operandi is to put doubt into what God's word actually says, um, and he means does it even today. Uh, Eve, re, uh, and she's not named Eve yet, but here uh, we, we know the name. So Eve responds to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. There's often a question with regard to Eve's response here, Pastor. And, um, you know, I don't know that we have a definitive word from Scripture, but I want you to weigh in on this. Uh, did Eve add to the Word of God with regard to this command that God gave? Or is there possibly another explanation for what's going on? Uh, God told Adam don't eat from the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden. And now Eve seems to be adding something. Don't even touch it. So uh, your thoughts on that? Yeah, uh, 
It is definitely an addition that God didn't say. What we don't know is that because Eve is already falling under the temptation of Satan, or is it because Adam has told her this for her for her sake? Um, you know, when Luther talks about this in his Genesis commentary, he talks about the tree being the place of worship where God has given his word, and so that's the place where Adam and Eve would have gone to church, and Adam would have been the pastor and said, this is the tree God said don't eat of it, uh, and I don't know if the rest, you know, the, th- the question is, is the rest of the sermon, don't touch it either for your own good to make sure you don't make a mistake, uh, or is it that Eve is now already falling into temptation and she's added this on her own, in which case we have an issue? If, uh, if it is that Adam had taught her this, it would be out of Adam's great love and devotion, both for God and his word and for his wife. You talk a lot about respect pastor and reverence and awe and devotion especially with regard to the divine service can we make that kind of a connection absolutely i think um the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is the place where god reveals his reverence and adam and eve have reverence for what god has told them uh and, and that the divine service is happening right there at that tree and so um Essentially, when they're here at the tree and Satan is there putting doubt into God's word, the place where God is being attacked by Satan is in the divine service in a way. And it's no surprise then that we see that same sort of thing happen today in our world where people want to throw out the divine service and change God's word or manipulate it to fit into our own emotional needs. Yeah, I don't want to say that uh, Satan here is the uh, first one to introduce contemporary worship into the sanctuary, but uh, there are some definite uh, connections, and uh, you explained that beautifully, so thank you. We're doing kind of a flyby here on Genesis 3, 1 to 21. The first time you hear these words, there's one word that kind of jumps out, and I don't know if this is a uh, hugely significant word, Pastor, or if this is a word that, because of our 21st century ears, it catches our attention. Naked. Naked. Three times in this text we have the word naked. Um, they realized, when, after they ate the forbidden fruit, they realized they were naked. Um, who told you you were naked, God says. Uh, is there anything to make of that? I, th- I think there is, and I think what they're... When they sin, they feel shame, finally. The reality of who they are now is revealed. Um, They hadn't been this way before. They had been in the image of God, holy and upright, and now they are no longer that. And so they feel that shame coming up uh, from within themselves. And what do humans do when they get in trouble? They try to cover it up. You know, when Pastor Poppy broke the lamp in the living room, he tried to glue it together before his mom got home. Uh, When you broke the window, you tried to close the shade so that mom and dad didn't see it. You try to cover up what's gone wrong. And Adam and Eve do that. They try to cover up what they've done by sewing together fig leaves. That won't cut the mustard. God already knows. God uh, gets down to uh, 
uh, questioning what's happened. It's not that God doesn't know, but he's trying to get them to confess their sins and receive absolution. And after uh, finally the truth comes out and there has been a confession, uh, God covers up the sin with animal skins. And the way you get animal skins, you take them off an animal, which is a sacrifice, if you will. There's blood that that must be shed so that uh, Adam and Eve's sin can be covered. And even the words that God speaks to Satan point ahead to the ultimate sacrifice for sin in our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, And even the the curses given to Adam and to Eve as well point ahead to that also. And so all these things are happening, and it's kind of an interesting turn of events that God brings about. You, You said more than a mouthful there, Pastor. And I think it's significant that at the end of chapter two in Genesis, uh, Adam and Eve were both naked and they felt no shame. Why? Because sin had not come into the world. And now immediately that naked word is right before us. Shame is there. They try to cover up their own shame, uh, self-justifying their actions. They blame each other. They blame the serpent. None of that. Their their situation ethics, their blame game, their loin skin and uh, uh, fig leaves won't do it. There's only one thing that'll do it. And I want to focus in on verse 15. God says, and he's speaking to Satan here, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Pastor, we got about a minute and a half left in this segment. How in the world is this the first gospel promise? Well, it's pointing ahead to Jesus Christ crucified and risen and uh, that by his death on the cross, Jesus destroys the power of Satan. And we could talk a lot about uh, explaining how that all works, but I think if you've seen the Passion of the Christ movie, there's the scene where Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane and Satan shows up and the snake comes out from underneath him, the same snake that was there in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, and Jesus stomps on it right as he goes to the cross. That's the whole idea that's being foreshadowed here by the words of God given to Satan. And then that also goes into Eve. Why is childbirth going to be more painful? Well, that's the way that the Savior is going to be born. Uh, generation after generation of people born in pain and suffering until finally Jesus is born of the Virgin Mary bringing this to fulfillment. And all the time to keep people alive, the men are working in the fields, having to uh, get the thistles and the thorns out, uh, eating the dust of the earth until finally they return to it as well. Um, all these things find their fulfillment in Jesus and what he accomplishes for us. Bad news for Satan is good news for Adam and Eve. Bad news for Satan is good news for us. And that good news is Jesus Christ crucified and risen for the life of the world. We need to take a short break. This is Proclaiming the One. We're looking at the readings for the first Sunday in Lent. When we come back, we're going to take a look at our epistle reading, Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. Don't change that dial. You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska.
Welcome back to Proclaiming the One, Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline. We serve the saints at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. We are looking at the readings for the first Sunday in Lent in the first segment Uh, First two segments, in fact, we looked at our gospel reading for Lent 1, Matthew 4, 1 to 11, the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness by Satan. Jesus overcomes the temptation of Satan by the power of the word of God. In our third segment, we took a brief look at our Old Testament reading, Genesis 3, 1 to 21, where we see Satan, again, uh, the... uh, uh, one trick pony. I love that pastor. Uh, he only has one trick, but he's really, really good at it. And uh, he comes planting doubt in Eve, and then Adam's mind can tricks them into eating the forbidden fruit. And then we see all of the terrible consequences that happen because of that. Uh, shame is brought into the world. Blame is brought into the world. Hiding from God, all these things. But in the midst of this, God gives them a promise. He gives them a powerful word. Genesis 3.15, which is sometimes referred to as the proto-evangel, the first gospel promise. God speaking to Satan. He is going to crush the serpent's head, and in the process, the heel will be bruised. This is a reference to the person and work of Jesus, who dies on Calvary's cross to pay for the sins of the world. Now, in our last segment, we want to take a look at our epistle reading, and as we've stated many times, the epistle reading is oftentimes a practical application of everything that we have heard. We have Hebrews 4, 14 to 16, and Hebrews is one of those books where um, not a lot of Christians are familiar with the book of Hebrews, probably for a variety of reasons, but it has a lot of worship uh, imagery. It has a lot of Old Testament, uh, especially the book of Leviticus imagery. And so I think sometimes Christians are a little bit afraid of the book of Hebrews. And then you start reading there and you got all this uh, Melchizedek and priestly order. And I can't, you know, what is all this about? Um, Pastor, um, a brief word about the significance of the book of Hebrews in the canon before we look at these exact words. Yeah, uh, the book of Hebrews itself is probably a sermon, uh, and you see this as the way it's based on all these Old Testament passages, uh, probably preached by St. Paul, although we don't know that for 100% sure, uh, that kind of takes all the Old Testament worship practices and finds their fulfillment in Christ so that the church might understand what's going on in their context today. And I hate to use the word context, but that's the reality. How do all these Old Testament things find their fulfillment in Jesus? And so it teaches us how to find fulfillment in the New Testament of the Old Testament, and it teaches us how the Old Testament worship looks forward to Christ. One of my favorite, all-time favorite Bible passages, and Pastor, I don't know if you remember this or not, but on the day that you were ordained here at Good Shepherd, and uh, so what is that, about 10 years ago now? Yeah, you're really aging me here. That's We're nine and a half almost. So. Yeah, so it'll be 10 years this summer, and uh, the day that you were ordained here at Good Shepherd, and I had the privilege of laying my hands on your head, and I spoke a word from the book of Hebrews, Hebrews nine twenty-two, without the shedding of blood, 
there is no forgiveness of sins. I can't think of a better passage that sums up not only the book of Hebrews, but the entire corpus of the scriptures. Because we are talking about the shed blood of Jesus, the very blood that was promised in Genesis 3.15, the shed blood of Jesus that brings us forgiveness, life, and salvation. So without further ado, Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You know, we've said many times that the epistle reading is uh, nothing more uh, than a practical application of everything that we have heard studied and gleaned from our gospel and old testament reading and uh here as you listening as you read those words pastor this is this is perhaps the most beautiful example of that that we have in the entire lectionary we have the gospel reading where jesus is tempted we have the old testament reading where adam and eve are tempted and succumb Jesus fulfills, overcomes the temptation. And here now, um, the author of the book of Hebrews, maybe the Apostle Paul, maybe Apollos or Barnabas, uh, we don't know. But it says, since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Now, that verse, verse 14 is emphasizing the fact that our Savior, Jesus Christ, is fully and completely God. He is, um, and as the the book of Hebrews in the first couple of chapters teaches, uh, Jesus is higher than the angels. Jesus is higher than all the human beings and all of creation. Jesus is the exalted one. Jesus is God. Since then, Jesus is God. And then it talks about a high priest. Now, and the high priest is not God. The high priest is a human being. So what do we have going on here, Pastor? And I think, too, it's too bad that our epistle lesson starts here in verse 14, because if you go to verse 13, it says, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Oh, now we have, and, that, now we have that naked connection back to Genesis, don't right, we? Oh, right. that is amazing. So in that regard, it's a little sad that it starts where it does, but, you know, it is what it is, as we say in North Dakota there. Um, We have this great thing where Jesus has gone through the heavens, and he is our great high priest, and the high priest is the one who makes sacrifices on behalf of all the people. He's the one who takes the blood into the Holy of Holies and pours it on the... um, uh, the the lid of the Ark of the Covenant between uh, where God is dwelling, right above it, between the angel wings, and inside the Ark is the law written on the, the tablets with the fingers of God, um, and the blood goes right between there as a covering that covers our nakedness so that when God looks at us through the law, he sees blood, and the blood that uh, the great high priest Jesus uh 
brings forward is not the blood of an animal or a goat or anything like that. It is his own precious blood. And so when when the author of Hebrews is saying these things, he's talking again about blood atonement and Jesus being the high priest. And so we hold fast our confession that he is the high priest who has overcome sin, death, and the devil for us. And so with that in mind, that Jesus, the great high priest, uh, the Holy One of God, is offering blood, and we know that it's his blood for forgiveness, life, and salvation, the next line almost catches us off guard. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every aspect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now we have the fact that our great high priest is not only true God, author of the universe, but that our great high priest, Jesus Christ, is both true God and true man all at the same time. And as a part of that humanity of Jesus, the thing that is emphasized in that verse 15 is not his death, his uh, shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sins. But what is emphasized is the fact that he is able to sympathize with our weaknesses because he has been tempted in every way, shape, and form that we have been, yet without sin. Pastor, so what? Well, as Adam and Eve were in the garden and Satan said, did God really say they were tempted and they succumbed to that temptation? As we go about our day-to-day lives and God says, did God really say uh, we are tempted? Uh, when God says, if you are a child of God, then don't do this. We always do whatever he says. Not always, but many times. We, f- we give in to sin, and yet uh, there is one man who didn't and who faced the same challenges, who heard the same words with their uh, honey-filled uh, lies, you know what I mean? Um, that's Jesus. And Jesus did what we were unable and told sta- Satan where to go, be gone, <laughs> uh, for God writes this, he says. And so in that way, Jesus has faced the same challenge that we did, and yet the the beauty of it is that Jesus did not give in. He overcame. So Jesus is tempted to lie, cheat, steal, lust, covet, uh, fornicate, uh, you, you know, you name the sin, Jesus was tempted the same way we are, yet he d- overcame it. The last verse here says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Do we draw near with confidence to the throne of grace because Jesus is our great example and we should try really, really hard to imitate him? What does this have to do with receiving mercy and finding grace and help in time of need? Well, uh, this is great because I, I think our translation here, we could probably do a little better than, uh, than what we have. The, the translation here for throne of grace, I'm looking it up as we speak here to make sure I'm saying this correctly. I think this is talking about the hilasterion, the, the place, the, the cover of the Ark of the Covenant uh, where the blood was offered. And so when it says, let us approach the throne of grace, in a way it's talking about let us come to the place of worship in the Old Testament, the place where the blood was poured. And, and that is then the place where mercy and grace is given out. 
we do that in the divine service when we come to the altar and we come to the place where Christ's blood and body are offered and we partake of them and we eat them for the forgiveness of our sins, life, and salvation. And so it is making this great connection from the Old Testament to our divine services that we participate in now. So it's not Jesus as example. It is, and he is our example, but he's so much more than that. He is our high priest who shed his blood on Calvary's cross, covering over all of our sins and giving us the strength that we need as we face these temptations through the power of the word and the forgiveness of sins to overcome temptation. Uh, Pastor, um, would you uh, bring us to a close by praying the collect of the day for the first Sunday in Lent? O Lord God, you led your ancient people through the wilderness and brought them to the promised land. Guide the people of your church that following our Savior we may walk through the wilderness of this world toward the glory of the world to come. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. For Pastor Adam Moline, this is Pastor Clint Poppy. Thanks for tuning in today to Proclaiming the One. Sunday morning when you get up. Read your paper, drink your coffee, pray for your pastor, but most of all, go to church. God's richest blessings in Christ. We'll see you again next week. Blessed Lent.